All right. Well, we're on. Um, I just uh, got word, and this tough word uh, before we start today, um, one of our dear friends, missionaries uh, that we've supported for a while, uh, Adrian Mango, passed away on Friday. Um, a man who has given his heart and life, that he and Cheryl and their children, to serving the Lord. Um, has been struggling with uh, hepatitis for some time, but then had some other complications uh, onset that as well. And uh, so I would just like you to join me in a word of prayer as we start today. Uh, our precious God and Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that we can choose the fear of the Lord. Lord, that your word is steadfast and true. Lord, I thank you for Adrian and his wife Cheryl and their children who, for the, the many, many years now have given their heart and their soul, their mind and their strength, Lord, to you and to the, the, uh, the equipping and the training of your word uh, to people in Nicaragua. Uh, God, we want to say thank you for the work that you have done through them. God, we know that right now that Adrian, your son, is in your presence. Lord, a place where there is no more crying, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more hurt. Lord, he is completely yours, glorified because of Jesus Christ. And we want to say thank you for that today. God, we lift up Cheryl and the kids and their spouses and Lord, the ministry. God, whatever you have in mind for them, we ask that you would guide and lead. But most of all, Lord, we pray for your comforting hand to just wrap your arms around them right now. Uh, Lord, love them, strengthen them, guide them. God, be their rock, be their strength in this great time of need. Lord, we want to say thank you, Lord, that you are all of that and much, much more. And so we want to say thank you in Jesus' wonderful and precious name. Amen. Kind of hard to move on after that announcement, but uh, today uh, we are moving back into the catechism questions, as you understand and as you've read already and recited with us, and we are in that question, what does God require in the first, the second, and the third commandments? And one of the things that I just want to say once again to you is that as we go through these, these questions and answers, the thing that we are doing is, is it, maybe for some of us, rebuilding Blocks, belief systems that have never been there, maybe uh, just reaffirming those things for us. But one of the things that, that we need to say, and, and this comes back from one of our early uh, just things that we said, that, that our only hope in life and death is Jesus Christ. And so we stand on that rock. We stand on the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we come to the, these questions that are dealing with the commandments, we we were here just before Easter, and now we're coming back into it again. Uh, and uh, so just, just want to just say that Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, 13 and 14 say this, um, It is the Lord your God, you shall fear him, you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are all around you. And so as we begin to dive into this area of the commandments, and we're just going to break them all up and discuss them and lay them out before you, we, we want to just look at the framework of the law. Just begin there. So the first two verses of Exodus, Exodus 20, um, 
uh, one of the things that we need to understand is they are perhaps the most overlooked verses in Scripture when it comes to the Ten Commandments. It's so easy. How many of you ever looked up the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, just where's it at? You looked it up. Can you go right to verse 3? Thou shalt, okay? But, it, but we need to understand that verse 1 and 2 set the framework for the law. And we need to understand that we need to wrestle with that and grapple with it. They set the framework for everything else that God is going to give in the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 and 2, it says this, You shall love, uh, sorry, and God spoke these words. Just listen to what I just said. And God spoke. God is speaking to Israel, his chosen people, whom he has just redeemed from Egypt. They are now at the foot of Mount Sinai. And God is speaking to them. He spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God. Folks, there is a bazillion messages right there alone that you can preach. Don't worry, I'm not going to do that to you, all right? But just think about, I am the Lord your God. That is so important for us to catch. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So first and foremost, we find within this framework, we find this, this thought. It answers who God is, who he is. It is so important. I am the Lord your God. God begins by powerfully communicating who he is. I am the Lord your God. The name that God chooses to describe himself is uh, describe himself with is the Lord, or in Hebrew, the word Yahweh. And God has many, many names throughout the Bible, and each one of his names describes one of his unchangeable and beautiful attributes. He describes himself in verse 2 as Yahweh, and in that description, it is not an accident, and it is not a coincidence that he uses these, this name, I am the Lord, capital L, capital O-R-D. I am the Lord your God, Yahweh. Within these two first two verses, we find, and here, just catch what I'm going to say, God's own protection for true theology. Did you catch that? True theology is what we say we believe. Theology is what we say we believe, okay? I believe in, and then we, we continue that list. That's what the catechism questions are all about. I believe these things. God, in these two verses, protects true theology. He tells Israel and you and I that he is the only one true God who is to be acknowledged and worshipped above all other gods. It is so important for us to catch that, folks. He uses the word Lord or Yahweh in connection with the Ten Commandments, which is highly significant. It means that when God gives the law, he is not approaching his people like some detached, uh, demanding deity. And if you, if you read biblical history and you read about some of the, the idols and the gods of the day, folks, one of the things you need to understand is they were detached. They were demanding deities. But that is not the way that God presents himself. Rather, he is describing himself here as a personal God of love and grace who acts on behalf of the people that he loves. It is so important for us to catch that. When he says, I am the Lord your God. I am the God who loves you. I am the God who is acting on your behalf. 
You see, God's law is an expression of his love. It is an expression of his love. God's intention here, as we begin to look at the Ten Commandments, is often misconstrued in a culture that seems that sees personal autonomy as its highest good. Folks, that's the world we live in today. Personal autonomy. I am my own. You know, I've built myself up to what I am today. I don't need any help. I don't need anyone. I am, this is me. In a sense, we're almost saying I am God. Isn't that what Satan said to Adam and Eve in the garden? You can be your own God. Self-autonomy, folks, is the thing that you and I wrestle with every single day of our lives. And we see it sometimes as the highest good. To be needy is seen as negative. And sometimes neediness could be negative. But to need, God made us to need him, and he made us to need others. And so we see this self, personal autonomy is the highest good. Anything that interferes with individualism, including the Ten Commandments, is considered wrong or even unnecessary. Many today perceive God's law as less than loving, even to the point of being the opposite of love as they, you and I, would define it. But this view of God's freedom and God's love is too simplistic, too shallow, really, quite honestly, too selfish. So we see that First, God says, this is who I am. And then secondly, he, he goes on and he says, this is what I have done. This is the other important observation in verse 2. Before God declares what his people should do. Do you catch that? Before he declares what they need to do, he declares what he has done for his people. Folks, sometimes we get that backwards. We think about what God wants us to do but we forget what God has already done. And that is so important for us. God reminds us of what he has done. He reminds him of his loving deliverance in rescuing Israel from the Egyptian, from the Egyptian oppression through the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea. As they stand before the mountain, he is reminding them of all of these things. He gives, a, uh, before he gives a, a moral imperative, God connects it to the gospel. Let me just define that really quickly to, for you. In other words, he declares what he has done, and then he reveals how his people are to live in light of what he has done. That is so important. That just changes the whole view of the law. Because of God, here's God speaking, because of what I have done, now this is what I want you to do. It is a response to his love, to his care, to his protection. Exodus 20, verse 2 says, I, It is I who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. One of the things I just want you to understand here is that God always, God always connects moral imperative, that is, what you and I are to do as a result of being in Christ with the gospel indicatives, that is, what God has already done on your behalf through Christ. It is so important for us to understand this, folks. Tim Keller, a great author, a pastor, said this. Um, religion says, obey, therefore I am accepted. Okay, If I obey, then I'm accepted. Okay, 
But the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel of the scripture says this, I am accepted, therefore I obey. Folks, that is life-changing. That is radical thinking. If we understand that first we have been rescued, Israel from the bondage of slavery, you and I from the bondage of sin, from the slavery of sin, if we understand that we have been delivered, then our response will be, I obey. Why? Because we want to. It is the right response. You see, God gave deliverance, then the law. We need to catch that in, in, as, as we think through this. He gave Israel deliverance. He saved them. He delivered them. He brought them out. Then he gave them the law. And in between, he says, and it is I, the Lord your God, who has done all this. So deliverance is not the reward for obeying the law. Okay, we all have been kids. Some of us are kids right now today. You ever get those things, you know, like, if you're good today, I'll give you. you can you relate to that? You know, you know, if we're good, then we get. Okay, that is not what God is saying here. Deliverance is not the reward for obeying the law. It is the power given in order for you and I to obey. That is so important, you guys, as we think about, as we, as we work through the laws together. So the only way, the only way to follow the law from the heart is to first experience God's redeeming grace. Folks, we need to rest in that. That is why when God says, I am the Lord your God who rescued you. We must first experience that re his redeeming grace before we'll ever really have a heart that will desire the things of the law, the things of his word. You see, you and I, we are saved by works and righteousness. But here it is, not of our own. Okay? Not of our own. We are saved and delivered by the work and the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Folks, there's a passage, just read it today in, in reading through one of my devotions in, in Romans chapter 5. For while we were yet sinners, okay? But God demonstrated his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Folks, does that speak of worthiness? Does that speak of your worthiness? No. You could say that a little bit louder. It does not speak of your worthiness. It speaks of God's worthiness. It points to God. I am the Lord your God who saved you. That is so important for us to catch. So we move, we move from this idea of, of the foundation of, of, of the law to the, to the format of, of the law itself as we begin to read through the law as it is given to us. And in, in, context, in the context of God's love, please remember this. As you read the law of God, in the, it is only in the context of God's love that it will ever make sense that you and I can approach his law. Just as he was intentional in establishing that framework for us to see and to understand in verse 2, we now see his intentional that he is intentional with the format in which the Ten Commandments are given to you and I today. So here's the flow. 
the flow of the law. The Ten Commandments are not just not a list of random, arbitrary order type lists that's given out here. All right? They are a, a structure and a method of, uh, in how they are given to you and I today. So the first three commandments address how you and I are to personally relate to and with God. They have a vertical dimension, if you will, in mind. They have a vertical dimension, all, all, the first three commands. So let me just read Exodus 20, 3 through 7 to you. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that uh, is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but show, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Just some thoughts here, okay? We just break this down. The first commandment prohibits having any other gods before God himself, which establishes, if you will, the sanctity of ultimate allegiance to the one true God. You shall have no other gods before me. He tells us to... He, uh, here's what God is saying, that he is to be the exclusive object of our worship, the ultimate object of our love and our desire. That is what God wants. That is why God made us in the first place, that we would desire him, that we would give our lives to him, that we would love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is what God wants. That is what he, he desires. And so the first commandment speaks to this idea that it establishes the sanctity, the institution, if you will, of ultimate allegiance to the one true God. So verse 3 spells out the foundation of our relationship with God. So here's the thing that as, we, as God gives, puts protection around true theology, if I just carry that, that idea, true theology then, what we say we believe requires true allegiance. True theology, what we say we believe requires true allegiance. You see, in 1 John chapter uh, 5 or so, God says, is, God is confronting the believers there. And he says, if you say you love God, but you hate your brother, you're calling God a liar. That's how practical this gets, you guys. We can say we love God. I love God, but if I hate my brother, then everything that we say we believe about God is a lie. We're making God a liar. So true, uh, true theology requires, in other words, a meshing, a fabric, if you will, true allegiance. And true allegiance then protects what we say we believe in and our devotion to God protects true worship. If there is only one God, then God requires first place in our hearts and in our lives. That is what God is establishing with Israel as they stand at the foot of Mount Sinai. He is saying, I am the one true God. 
That is so important for us to understand. This foundational truth is not just for the individual, you and I. And again, this comes back to that whole individualistic view of life that we live in today. But it also becomes the cohesive bond for a people of faith called the church, called the assembly. Folks, that's why the church is so necessary. Because you and I can't make it on our own. Can I just tell you that? You and I cannot make it on our own. We need each other. We need God. That's our, that's our vertical. And we need the horizontal. We need each other. And to say that we don't need anybody is to say we don't need God. Let that resonate, you guys. Let that just resonate. The foundation, this foundational truth is not just for the individual. Okay, well, I have this personal relationship with God. No. Folks, when you go to heaven, you're not going to have your own little cubicle. You're not going to have your own little space. Okay? Even for those of you that, like me that love to be by ourselves sometimes, I'm just going to tell you there's going to be a crowd. Okay? And I'm going to tell you something else. Crowds wear me out. But here's the deal. When I get to heaven, I'll be different. I'll be different because I'll be in the presence of God. And I will be with people who believe the same. And our focus will be completely and wholly on God, not on us anymore. The second commandment then is similar uh, and it tells us that we are not to worship according to our own concepts or const uh, constructs of God. This is what the Bible calls idolatry. Verse 4 through 6, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth below or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Folks, that's righteous jealousness for his first and only place in his life, in our lives that God demands first. There is no other place for God but first. I'm a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Folks, to not obey the law out of love is to hate God. That's plain and simple. I used to read that and go, wow, those are really strong words. To not obey is to disobey, which is to hate. To disrespect, to, to, to dishonor. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So what is an idol? Okay, we know in the Old Testament there were idols, stone and wood, carvings, just some of them grotesque, awful, fearful. But here's the thing. Well, can I just define it for you and I today? A god, an idol, uh, beyond God itself, is anything or anyone that we put in place of God in our lives. Anything or anyone. An idol is anything or anyone that we consider so central, so fundamental, so essential to our lives that we cannot imagine life without it, him, or her. Married couples, can I just tell you, your spouse was never meant to be your God. In other words, your spouse was never meant to be your Savior, your Redeemer. Only God deserves that place. 
Your spouse is your partner, the one that completes you. Kids, it is so easy for us to put things in place of God. You know, we, we have all of our, our, all of our electronic toys today, and, and I'm telling you, it's so easy for us. And adults, we're not, we're not remiss here either that just get so sucked into all this stuff that it just eats all of our time. And I'm just going to say it doesn't matter what it is, okay, anything, an idol is anything or anyone that we consider so central, so fundamental, so essential to our lives that we cannot imagine our life without it. Plain and simple, okay? Just plain and simple. An idol is anything or anyone that we love more than God, trust more than God, and or obey more than God. So here's the deal, folks. We must worship God according to who he says he is and not according to what we want him to be. We must worship God according to who he says he is, not according to what we want him to be. So the third commandment is actually like the first two, that we are not to misuse or to mistreat the name of God. You shall not Take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord is uh, will not hold him guiltless who takes the name, his name in vain. And so we know, folks, we know that the name, that God's name describes his character, the essence of his being, which is why um, when God met with Moses at the burning bush, that he and Moses said, well, hey, you want me to go back to Israel? And Moses says, who do I tell them sent me? And here is the words that he said. You tell them that I am sent you. I am. In other words, God is saying, I am the, uh, the ever-existing eternal God. I am it. There is no one else besides me. So when we think about misusing the name of God, it's not merely, uh, it doesn't mean that there are certain words that we can or cannot say. I mean, I grew up, don't say that word, okay? That's not what this is about, folks. It means that when we speak of God, whether through words or lifestyle, behavior that is, that we fully honor God and respect who he is. You see, here's something I just want to say. It's really easy to honor God with my mouth, but not with my actions. Or maybe the other way around, maybe I find that it's easy to honor God with my actions, but not my mouth. And here, that is what is being said here, that, that when, it, uh, when we speak of God, whether it is through words or lifestyle that we honor, that we fully honor and respect who God is. And here it is, folks. He is the Lord God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And I want you to know this because we've already said it. He created you. He created you. And here's what he created for you for, to know him and to love him above all else. That is why he created you and I. And so we, we need to consider these first three commandments. They, they deal strictly with our, our vertical relationship with a God who loves us, a God who made us, a God who designed us to be in a relationship with, 
with us. That is his intention. And folks, even though we live in a broken world today, we know that one day everything will be restored. Amen? We know that everything will be brought back to God's intended plan and we will be in his presence and there will be nothing between us and God. I don't know about you, but I look forward to that day. But this is the, the intended plan of God right here, the first three commandments. You shall have no other God before me. Folks, Israel moved into the land of Canaan and they had every kind of God you can think of. Some of the most heinous acts of worship were done right in Israel. The sacrifice of babies, the worship of, of gods, that, that, that fertility gods, and the gods of sex, everything you could think of, it was there. And God says, destroy it all. Because if you intermingle, here's what's going to happen. You're going to get sucked right in. And you're going to worship false gods. And folks, we live in the same. The gods may look different, but it's the same. It is so easy for us to get sucked in. Kids, it is so easy for us to get sucked in. I just want to challenge you. Make your stand now. Don't wait till you grow up. Because I'm just going to tell you it's too late. Make your stand for God now. Have him be your first and foremost, the love of your life, the passion and desires of your heart. Because as we conclude, we must ask, why do these commandments insist on us worshiping God alone and worshiping God for who he is and not what we want him to be? Why is that so important? We have to ask the question. Why is the third commandment so insistent on honoring and respecting his name and his character? Because here it is, and I just said it, but I want to repeat it to you again. Because God created us with the desire that only he can fulfill, and that is a desire for him. God made you with a desire for him. And here's the crazy thing in the broken world we live in. We try to fill it with every other kind of desire. That's idolatry. If we are always trying to change who God is or replace him with something or someone else, can I just tell you this today? You and I will never be at peace, ever. We will never be at peace. We will never experience true comfort. We will never uh, experience uh, true significance, true purpose, true joy. We will never be whole, ever. Until God becomes first. And I'm just going to tell you, that's a daily battle. Amen? That's a daily battle for who will sit on the throne of your heart. You or God. That is a daily battle. That is a 24-7 battle. That is a second-by-second second battle for the supremacy of your heart and mind. That's why one of the... The early church fathers, Augustine, wrote this. You've made us, he's speaking about God, you've made us for yourself. You, you made us your, uh, you made us yourself. Uh, I might have written, you've made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Augustine said, you've made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until 
it rests in you. That's the first three commandments, folks. Resting in God. You know, God made us. He made us for himself. And the question that I just want to leave us with before we move into, we have some baptisms that we're going to celebrate today. The question that I want to ask you is, have you found rest in him? Have you found rest in him? I am the Lord your God. And this morning, I just want to just say this. If you have not, if you have not given your heart and your life, your soul to him, and just said, God, you are my God. You are the one who made me. You are the one who created me to be yours. And I have lived all of my life trying to be myself, trying to be the God of my life, and it's not working, and I have no rest, no comfort, no peace, no joy. Have you found rest in him? Give your heart and life to him. Surrender to his love and his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. This morning we get to experience baptism, and this morning we have some folks that are going to say, I have given my heart and life to Jesus Christ. Amen? They're publicly testifying. We have some very young and some medium old. <laughs> we, but we have everything in between because as people come to that place where they say, I want to say that God is the Lord of my life, we get to say that together. We get to publicly testify to that. And that's what these folks are going to do today. So baptism is our way of publicly acknowledging that we are no, no longer the Lord of our, our own lives, but Jesus Christ is. And in baptism, we are testifying that we have become a part of Christ in his death and his burial and resurrection. We're identifying with all that Christ has done for us. And so today we have um, Ellie and Nolan and Sam Wimbles and Lucy Callen and Dave Bachnitz. Uh, Bachnitz? Bachnitz, there, I always get that wrong all the time, okay, that are going to be baptized. So I'm going to ask if you guys just head into the kitchen and, you're, and we'll direct some traffic there, but let me pray as they're taking their place. And um, um, again, just thank God for um, his word today. God, we want to say thank you. We love you. God, we worship you today. We thank you that you are the only one true God. Lord, the creator of heaven and earth maker of all things. God, we, we surrender to that. We surrender to that, acknowledging that you are God and God alone. And God, we worship you today. God, thank you for the reminder of those first three commandments that, that call us to accountability, that call us to, to put you first, to place you first, to seek and desire after you above all else. Lord, help us to live that way every day. Help us to speak that every day. God, we just want to say thank you. We love you. Lord, we ask now your blessing upon these that are baptized today. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.